everyone. How are we doing? It's great to see everybody doing well and to hear that you're all, all enjoying each other and the, the spring weather or the summer weather, whatever weather we're in. Uh, today, we are starting our new series in Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians uh, is, a, is a book written by the Apostle Paul. It's a letter from Paul. And the reason why we want to study Ephesians together today is because over the last few weeks and months, uh, we have been experiencing and exploring what it means to be a Christian family. And one of the things about Ephesians is that it tells us all about our Christian family dynamic. Uh, but it doesn't just tell us about how to do it, it tells us why we should do it. And so as a church family wanting to explore what it means to be family in Christ, uh, we're going to look to this beautiful letter written by Paul. And so with that in mind, I'm going to invite Alan to lead us in our reading for today. Today's scripture reading is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 to 6. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 to 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the Father and blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has been blessed, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Alan. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity now to open up your word and to study your word. And God, as we hear your word teached and preached, uh, taught, Lord, would you, would you encourage us and would you help us to see the beauty of our Christian family and to treasure it. God, we pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Letters to a Prisoner, a book by Jacques Goldstein. I wonder if you've heard of that book title before. It's a children's book illustrated by Canadian author Jacques Goldstein in partnership with Amnesty International. Using only pictures to convey the power of hope and the power of written word, this book starts with a depiction of a father and a daughter joyfully setting out to a peaceful protest. Unfortunately, one thing leads to another, and the father and daughter get separated finding themselves, finding himself specifically, wrongly imprisoned. Midway through the book, a tragic picture is presented. Face disfigured and clothes worn out, the father appears broken and lost without hope. That is until one day, a little birdie flies by and drops off a note. Back against the wall, light beams from the note and the father appears warmed and renewed by hope. I'm not going to tell you how the book ends. It actually has a very surprising end. And if you have a library card, I want to invite you to go to the public library and to pull out that book and see its end. The reason why I share this story with you today 
is because it portrays the power of hope through written word. Like light that warms the soul, written words could ignite hope in our heart. And today, today, as we turn to Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 6, we have the opportunity to be warmed by some very powerful words, words that give hope. It's God's word. Focusing on the first person of the Trinity, Paul's going to highlight God's amazing grace for us and teaching us specifically that God the Father is to be greatly praised for his eternal acts of grace. Paul's going to tell us two things. Firstly, he's going to tell us what we need to do, what we should do, and why we should do it. Warming our hearts so that we might respond with praise, Paul's going to show us that God the Father is to be greatly praised for his eternal acts of grace. We're going to look at our first point, what we should do, what we should do. Um, If you turn to verse 1 of our passage today, Paul gives a brief introduction to the book of Ephesians. And for those of you exploring the Christian faith, uh, there's some technical terms here that you might not recognize. The first word you might notice is Paul calls himself an apostle. What's an apostle, you might wonder. An apostle is a hand-picked ambassador for Jesus Christ himself, an emissary chosen by the king to represent the king and his crown. In this case, it's the crown of Christendom. We see from Paul's introduction that this letter is to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is a place where Paul visited on his third missionary journey. It was known for two things. Firstly, its massive temple devoted to Artemis, the pagan god of fertility and the hunt. The second thing it was known for was its love for the library. It had one of the the, the world's biggest library in its city. And what you see here is a culture that is deeply sophisticated, culturally sophisticated, yet also culturally addicted to its old pagan roots. As Christians today, many of us might not believe in pagan gods, but we do find ourselves preoccupied quite a bit with cultural sophistication. And it's for this reason Paul writes to them. He wants to encourage them to hold fast to the faith. Christians hold fast to the faith. We see in our letter, Paul writes to the saints in Ephesus. You might wonder, what's a saint for those of you investing in the faith? I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear that word. Do you think of the patron saints of the Holy Catholic Church, those uh, beautiful, colorful people that are engraved into these stained glass windows? Maybe you think of Christmas and good old Saint Nick with cookies in hand and milk in hands. A saint, by definition, is neither of those. A saint is one who has been made holy, anyone who has been set apart by God and for God, invited by God into the family of God. Christians, by title, you are called a saint. And it's to these faithful saints, these Christians who are struggling to contend and fight for their faith, to maintain their faith in Ephesus, that Paul writes what they're to do. In verse 2, you see a quick blessing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, what is that? Uh, that's, a, that's a prayer. That's a prayer from Paul encouraging people and praying and asking God to bless them as they read it. In verse 3 now, as we move to verse 3, this is where we see Paul tell us what to do, though. Breaking into song and into what might be the longest run-on sentence in the New Testament, Paul sings, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are we to do, Christians? Are we to be swept along 
by the culture's push for cultural sophistication? Are we to be swept along by the trends of today? No. Paul says, this is what denotes a true Christian. They're faithful to God, and they bless God. Bless God. More specifically, bless God the Father. The passage says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at the passage, you might think, Kingsley, it doesn't actually say blessed, though. It says, blessed be the God and Father of Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds like Paul's actually just blessing God, not telling us to bless God. This is where translations are helpful. If you turn to an NIV translation, which helps us understand the semantic force of the Greek language a little bit better, you'll see Paul translate the phrase, praise be to God. In the Greek, the word bless is meant to be hortatory. That is an encouraging note for us, not just to to hear Paul praise God, but also for us to praise God. If you were to look at the, the phrase, praise be to God, you get the sense that not only is Paul saying, I'm praising God, but you praise God also. And so we see here Paul saying to us, not only will I praise God, but you praise God too. This is what we're supposed to do. Now, you might wonder, what does blessing the Father look like? And why should we bless the Father? Uh, I don't look forward to this, but my daughter just turned one the other day. I hear around two, that's when kids start to ask a lot about whys. Why, Dad? Why do I do this? Why do I do that? We, we actually, as adults, haven't grown out of that. We still like to ask why quite a bit as well, don't we? And so we're going to tackle the why first before we answer the what. What does it look like? We're going to ask, why should we do it? Why should we do it? Verse 3 tells us why. If you look in your bulletins, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blessed us. Responding to God who blessed us first, the Christian response is to bless God back. We bless because we've been blessed. Now, you might wonder how. How has God blessed us? Verse 3 tells us how. Starting generally, Paul hones in on two examples. In general, Paul says we've been blessed in Christ with not, not some, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Before we jump into the question that's probably in your mind right now, which is what's the spiritual places or what's every blessing in the spiritual places mean, let's focus on something first, something that repeats itself over and over again in this passage. And that's how these blessings come to you. Notice in verse 3, 4, 5, and 6, there's these repeated phrase, in Christ, in him, through Christ, in the beloved, telling us how we're blessed and the means in which we are blessed, the mechanism for being blessed. We realize we're blessed because of Christ. We're blessed because we've been united to Christ. It's in Christ, the crucified and resurrected Christ that we celebrated last week that we received these blessings. What we see here is a doctrine called the union with Christ, union with Christ. I wonder if you've heard of that doctrine before. Union with Christ is a mysterious and glorious doctrine that explains how we can be the beneficiaries of God's manifold blessings. In short, according to scripture, the biblical pattern suggests that undergirding every moment of a redemption is this one reality, that all we have is ours to have, because it's ours in Christ. 
An illustration to help us make sense of this doctrine is actually marriage. When a man or a woman gets married, they become one in sacred and civil union. And one of the privileges of such a union is that each party becomes the beneficiary of the other person. When I got married to Hannah, my brothers joked on my wedding day in a text message that I should praise God. Why? Because I doubled my assets overnight. <laughs> for those of you who are married, I hope that's the case for you too. In reality, you might have doubled your debts, unfortunately. I hope that's not the case. Either way, the reality is this. What's mine became hers, and what's hers became mine. We were united as one. And so all the benefits, all the blessings that we brought into the relationship was shared. In society, we have other examples of how marriage gives us these blessings, other blessings and other benefits. There's tax benefits. For those of you with medical benefits, you get to share those medical benefits. When you're married and you're united to someone, there are benefits that you get. Our union with Christ is no different. All that we have is ours to have because we've been united to Christ. If you flip to the end of your Bibles, if you had a hard copy Bible in front of you, and if you don't, you can grab one at the front when you leave, there's a book called Revelation. And the book of Revelation ends with a picture of Christ being married to his church. God's trying to help us see we are united to Christ, and that's the reason why we have these benefits. Now, regarding what it means to have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, uh, Herman Ritterboss is a Dutch theologian and expert in Pauline theology. And he observes that whenever you see the word spiritual, more often than not, what we need to think is that spiritual refers to that which is derived from the Holy Spirit. That which is derived from the third person of the Trinity who works in unity with God the Father, God the Son, God. To help us grasp the character of God's blessing, connecting things to the Holy Spirit is helpful as it helps us see the blessings aren't primarily physical, but spiritual in nature, just as God is spiritual. This is important to see because it's a powerful corrective for those of us who think that the blessings of Ephesians 1 is something of the health, wealth, and prosperity nature. It's actually not that. The health, wealth, prosperity nature of the gospel, or the gospel that's called the prosperity gospel, teaches us that if you believe in God, you get rich. If you believe in God, you'll be healthy. If you believe in God, you'll get everything you want in this lifetime. That's not the type of blessings that Paul is talking about here. According to the gospel, the blessings that we have are spiritual in nature, just as the Spirit of God is spiritual. Sure, we might experience physical blessings at times, but that's not what's primary, and that's not what gets Paul singing. It's something else. It's a spiritual blessing, something that you can't hold in your hands, but something that Christians have laid hold with their spiritual hands. If you were to read through the Bible and look for the phrase heavenly places, the heavenly places will help us get a sense for just how blessed we are. If you were to look through the Bible and look for the word heavenly places, you'll actually only find it in one book of the Bible. Do you know what book that is? It's Ephesians. Showing up five times, if you look at these times, you'll see that the heavenly places describe a place where Christ 
dwells and reigns. It describes a place where also the mysterious forces of evil contend with Christ for his reign. It describes a place where the angels dwell and demons rebel. It's a place that reaches the highest heights of heavens and the lowest parts of the earth. According to Ephesians, the heavenly places describe a larger, invisible, cosmic ecosystem in which you and me and all the supernatural beings exist. Skeptics, you might think this sounds crazy, but it's actually not. How do I know this? Disney World. If you haven't been to Disney World, Disney World is literally a world within our world. Designed to make you forget about the outside world, the magical kingdom has endless attractions for distractions. Disney World has its own power grid. Disney World has its own police force, its own transportation system, and even medical care program. If you're sick at the resort, you can call a number and a doctor will come to you. Humanity created a world within a world at Disney World. And if we can do it, what makes us think God can't do it? What makes us think God hasn't done it? For those of you who are skeptical right now, you can live a life in this physical world without acknowledging that you're part of a bigger world. But that would be your loss. Because whether you acknowledge or not, God has made a world, a bigger world, that goes beyond this physical world. And this world is called the heavenly places. Now, I know this feels pretty abstract, so to help us and our hearts sing, Paul gives us two things to think about, two acts of grace and blessings that will make your heart sing. One act is found in verse 4, the other is in verse 5. One act is our election in Christ. The other is our predestined adoption in Christ. Paul talks about our election in verse 4, our predestined adoption in verse 5. Look with me to the bulletin. It says, even he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You might wonder, what's the difference between predestination and election? Um, Not much. If we were to split hairs, though, if we were to split hairs, uh, predestination is the broader category in which election fits into. Predestination refers to God's sovereign choice over everything that happens in the universe, in the heavenly places. Election, election focuses on God's sovereign choice regarding personal salvation. Regarding election, In the Christian community, there's an age-old debate about who chose who first in salvation, in redemption. Was it God who chose us first, or was it us? Uh, Some people believe that we are saved from our sins because of our decision to trust in Jesus, and as a result, God chose to save us. He saw my faith, so he chose me. He knew I'd love him, so he chose me. These are some of the things that people say. But the doctrine of election teaches us the opposite. James Anderson is a professor of systematic theology and a Christian apologist, and he defines election this way. The doctrine of election can be summed up like this. He says, God's decision to save someone does not ultimately depend on anything in that person. Ephesians 1 is a key proof text. Verse 4 says that God chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. 
before we were born, before we could make any choices, the Bible says God chose you. He didn't choose you, Christians, because he foresaw that we choose him in the future. He didn't choose us because we deserve to be chosen. He didn't choose us because of our repentance or good works. He chose us because he wanted to choose us. Verse 5 tells us, in love, he predestined us for adoption. He chose us. And it was according to his will. Election, as John Sott says, isn't a matter of human speculation. It's biblical revelation. God's choice to save some over others ultimately depends on nothing in that person. So why do we struggle with this doctrine? Well, on one hand, some people feel manipulated. Is my choice to follow Jesus a sham? Is it really my choice at the end of the day? Others have issues with the justice and love of God. How is it fair, we say? How is it fair for God to choose some over others? Why does God get to decide who lives and who dies? Concerning the first objection, the Bible's pretty clear. The Bible affirms that your choice is really your choice. It's not a sham. We're not robots. The world's not fatalistic. When God says you have a choice, believe it or not, you really do have a choice. Yet here's the mystery. On one hand, we have a real choice. On the other hand, God is completely sovereign over that choice. How these two ideas reconcile is a divine mystery. In Romans 9, for example, it says that God ordained that Pharaoh would not let the people go, the Israelites go from Egypt. He ordained that. Yet at the same time, in Exodus 7 to 11, Pharaoh is credited for being the one who said no. It was his decision. There are compelling reasons for why both these realities are true. But at the end of the day, there's a certain level of mystery between these two truths. And so what's the fitting response in these moments? Do we fight with one another in the church about these things? Do we jostle back and forth and be cruel to one another? Sadly, in the Christian tradition, that has been what we have done. Those of us who believe in this doctrine of election, uh, one of the things we call ourselves are Calvinists. We have a reputation at times in propagating these truths for being known as cruel Calvinists, speaking in such a way that makes little of those who don't accept these truths. That should not be the case, because if you look at this doctrine here that makes Paul's heart sing, the doctrine is a doctrine of grace. And what's a fitting response for God's grace? Humility. Humility. Christians, you who acknowledge election, we should be charitable and patient with those grappling with election. And Christians, those of you who grapple with election, I want to encourage you, don't dismiss Scripture's revelation of election because you don't understand it. Rather, embracing these mysterious biblical truths for what they are I want to encourage you to praise God for his electing grace. Because whether you acknowledge it or not, it happened. God chose you. Before the foundation of the world, he chose you in him. 
on the question of how this doctrine is fair and why God gets to choose who lives and who dies, uh, we need to remember who we are in this creator-creature relationship. I know it's emotionally hard to come to terms with the idea that God chooses some over others and he doesn't save everyone. But as created creatures, we have to recognize that we're not in a position to tell God what's right or wrong. Because God is the standard of what's right and wrong. We're the ones that are supposed to derive our definitions of justification, of justice, excuse me, and what's right and wrong from him. Not the other way around. Furthermore, if we're the ones who sinned against him, and we have by breaking his laws and disobeying him and even rejecting him at times, God owes us nothing, including grace. He reserves the right, every right, to demand full justice for our sins. Uh, Think about it for a minute. Imagine someone sinned against you. You're walking to work one day, maybe on the subway, and someone comes behind you and hits you. They steal from you, and they'll leave you to die on the street. It might sound extreme, but if you read the news, it's not that far off from what Toronto's like right now. Imagine that something like that happened. And catching that person, imagine if that person said to the police and said to you, don't press charges on me. Instead, I want you to forgive me, pardon me, let me go free without any charges. What would you say to that person? Is that a fair thing to request? No. (laughs) We'd say to that person, are you out of your mind? Are you crazy? I'm the one that gets to decide whether I press charges or not. I'm the one that gets to decide whether I'll forgive. You don't get to say that. That's unfair. If it's wrong for us to demand grace from one another at a human level under these circumstances, how much more with God, who owes us nothing, God owes us nothing as the creator of the cosmos. Moreover, as sinners who sinned against him, we're the ones being unfair, actually, by accusing him of being unfair. Yet here's the beauty of election. So that we might praise God for his grace and to display his infinite love, which he does not have to give us. God gives it to us. In Christ, he pardons us through his son. Romans 9 says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. As recipients of his grace, Christians, gratitude would mean that we praise God for such a grace, not accuse him of lacking grace. If you have received God's grace today, Christians, no, you did not deserve it. It was a gift from God. He chose to give it to you. Now, as we turn to verse 5, here we consider another act of grace. It's our predestined adoption in Christ. Verse 5 says that in love, God predestined us for adoptions as sons through Christ. Notice how this blessing comes to us again. It's through Christ bringing us into intimate relationship with God, the Father. Not only does he choose to forgive us in his son, he chooses to give us the privileged position of becoming sons and daughters, positioned next to his eternally begotten son, Jesus Christ. 
dying for us and rising for us so that we might rise to this new status as sons and daughters of God. Jesus, through his, or God the Father, through His Son, Jesus Christ, welcomes us into His family through Christ. And lest you think God was willy-nilly about adopting us in Christ, Ephesians tell us otherwise. Notice the motivation. It's in love that God specifically chose you according to His will. He didn't choose us in a willy-nilly manner. No, He looked specifically at you, Christians. And He said, I want to love you. I want to pour out all my grace on you. Not some, but every spiritual blessing on you. God says, Rex, I chose you. Stephen, I chose you. Tarek, I chose you. Mr. and Mrs. George, I chose you. Jonathan, I chose you. Dan, I chose you. David, I chose you. All you Christians, I chose you. He looked at you and he said, I want you. And I'm going to make you mine and I'm going to do everything I can to make it possible. I choose you. It's in love that God chose you. And for those of us who feel unlovely at times and unworthy of God's love at times, God says, I still love you. I choose you. Unconditional affection. I chose you. I understand that not all of us have had the best fathers in this world. And so for some of us to comprehend such a fatherly love, it's difficult Some of us think that God's an angry father waiting to dish out discipline, while others think that God is a distant father who doesn't care about us. The scriptures here want you to see that God's not a fallen father like our earthly fathers. And if you've experienced hardship because of your earthly father, or you're struggling to see God as a loving father, Paul wants to encourage you to sit with this glorious doctrine. Because in studying this doctrine of adoption, you'll be hit with a tsunami of grace. If we can just do a quick overview of some of the things the Bible has to say. In Romans 8, God shows you and teaches us that our adoption gives us access to the full pleasure of God as his beloved children. It says at the end of Romans 8 that neither height nor depth nor any created thing in the universe can separate us from the love of God. It's a paraphrase. Romans 8, 38 to 39, you read it for yourself and let those words sink in. Ephesians 1, the passage we just spoke of, says we are inordinately blessed by the Father as He spoils us with not some, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, I have a little baby girl, and I love her to death, and every time I see her in the morning, even when she's a total monster, I just want to pour out my love on her, everything I've got. You want the orange? I'm going to give you an orange. You want the pear? I'm going to give you the pear. You want the watermelon? I'll cut you the watermelon right now. I want to pour out my love on her. Every blessing I can, I want to pour out on her. God says, I want to pour it out on you. Revelation 21.7 says that God so loves us, and because of his adoption of us, he says that we'll one day rule and reign with Christ as co-heirs of the universe. If you go to 1 Corinthians 6.3, did you know that 1 Corinthians 6.3 says that one day we'll judge the world and angels with Christ? The only reason why we can do that is because of our adoption in Christ. Think about this for a moment. 
crowned with crowns. You and I one day will stand as kings and queens next to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our brother, Jesus Christ, as we rule and reign with him. Conjure the image of being in a room as poet Walter Rayleigh described, strewed with rubies thick as gravel, ceilings of diamonds and sapphire floors. There, we will stand as, heaven's, as, as God's children, glistening next to heaven's great king. And you know what we'll sing? We're going to sing praise the king. Praise the king who in love chose us and adopted us for this very thing, that we'd be sons and daughters of God the Father. If you were to go through your Bible and study the doctrine of adoption, you will see that you are loved. You have been chosen out of love. You would see a father who loves you. Sometimes I daydream about the day I go to heaven, and I can see all of us standing there before two angels waiting to get in. One by one, we'll go to them saying, I'm allowed in, I'm allowed in. I can see my turn going up to one of those angels, and one of those angels will probably say to me, yeah, I'm not sure about him. I'm not sure about this one. Is he a son? The angel next to him will probably say, beats me. At which point, I can see God the Father running to the gate, gleaming and smiling and gloriously screaming, son, my son, welcome. Let him in, come in, welcome. God, your father, Christians, will be there to welcome you. And it will be glorious. And it will be beautiful. And it will be absolutely wonderful. This is the doctrine of adoption. This is what you get in Christ because you've been adopted by God. And so, what's the appropriate response? We bless God. We bless God. We sing to God and bless God. What does it look like to bless God, you might ask? Well, think about it. What does your heart want to do when you think of such a glorious doctrine? You want to sing. With your lips, you want to sing to God. You want to share about God to anybody who would hear about God. With your heart, with your mind, with your soul, you want to praise God. You want to live a life to honor God. You want to give God everything in return for all that he's given to you, not because you've earned it, but because because you want to love him back just as you've been loved. How else might we bless God? We can bless God in the church. We can bless God in the church. If we want to think about specific areas, we can bless God. We can bless God in the church. Dan shared an announcement just earlier about how we can bless God in the church. I'm going to piggyback on that and throw in a couple other ways you can bless God in the church. You can bless God in the church by volunteering in the coffee ministry, in the AV ministry, in the booth at the back, on the slides at the back. You can volunteer by serving in GT Kids. You can volunteer and bless God by serving in prayer ministries before the service and after the service. 
You can bless God by serving in connections ministry. You can bless God and show God your love by giving Him your time and leading a small group or hosting a small group. You might need training, and we'll provide that for you. But there are so many ways we can bless God in the church. Another area we can bless God is in the city. We can bless God in the city. Um, Notice how Paul blesses God in the city. Um, Paul, in Acts 19, he went to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And what does he do? He goes to a city that did not know Jesus, and he shares Jesus with them. We, as Christians, we can bless God in the city by sharing Jesus with people. For those of you who are not yet married, you have a very, very powerful opportunity to bless God in the city with your time. One of the things I regret most as a single man was not blessing God in the city with my time. I got caught up trying to find a wife. I got caught up trying to make lots of money so that I could save up for a home, so that I could go on trips with my family. You have an opportunity to bless God in the city because you have actually a lot of time. You don't have the constraints of having to be home by a certain hour to put your kid to sleep. You can meet anybody anywhere. You can travel across the city to meet up with your friends and to have gospel conversations. I want to encourage you to consider how God might be calling you today to bless Him in the city by sharing your faith with those in the city. Bless God in the city. Families, young parents, lest you think I'm just going to talk to them, I'm going to talk to you also. Bless God in the city, families. And if that city is in North York, bless God in North York. If it's in Scarborough, do it in Scarborough. I know your children might feel like black holes who have sucked sucked every opportunity for a social life out. I feel that. I do. But we still have an opportunity to bless God in the city. How? We can go to our local community centers, meet new parents with little children, and we can leverage our children to create playdates for our children so that we can also have time to talk to our neighbors about God in the city. You can bless God in the city. Whether it's in the city or in the church or in life in general, the end of the matter is this. God is to be blessed. And God should be blessed because he has poured out his eternal acts of grace on us endlessly. So let us praise him. Let us praise him. Let's pray. God, we pray and ask for your help to bless you in this city, to bless you in our church, and to bless, uh, bless you in our lives in general. God, as we sit with these glorious doctrines, we ask that you would make them a reality for us, that you would open our mind and eyes to see the beauty of this so that we might praise you and honor you with all that we've got. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, at this time, we have time for maybe probably one question. Sorry, that was a little long, but it's a lot of good doctrine we got to sit with. So, Rex, how about we have you share one question? I'll do my best to be quick and brief, and uh, we'll go on to the next part. Thanks, Kingsley. So we did get quite a lot of questions, and uh, I do encourage you uh, that if you... Do you have a question um, to send it to Kingsley at uh, gracetoronto.ca? I saw a lot of really good 
uh, theological kind of doctrine kind of questions. And so we want to appropriately respond to them, uh, make sure that, you know, these are things that uh, you kind of understand if this is a question for you. So um, one of the questions I think that we can easily answer within the allotted time is that, um, and it's quite a good one, it's like, how do we ensure that what we learn today, uh, talking about the doctrine of election and predestination, don't negatively impact how we uh, relate in terms of our missional work? Uh, maybe we're thinking about our loved ones, our family, uh, maybe we're sitting here today and thinking about these um, this question today. Yeah, so. that's a great question. Yeah. Uh, that was something that made it into the first draft of my sermon, but I had to cut it out because there's a lot of content uh, that I had to, to, to choose between. Um, so the question in summary is, uh, if, let me rephrase it this way. If God chooses, um, we might feel discouraged to not share our, the faith because we are wondering, how do we know if God chose them? Well, Brian Chapel is a pastor and a preacher, and he deals with this question quite well. He reminds us that the doctrine of election isn't for the non-Christian, it's for the Christian. It's meant to assure the Christian. And if you're concerned about whether this person is elect or not, your family or friend is elect or not, you're actually worried about the wrong thing. That's for God to worry about. For us, we have one call, and that's the share of the faith. God will be the one who confirms their faith after they've turned to him. And so I would encourage you to consider this mandate. God has given you this role to share the faith. And actually, he's, he, he's ordained such that it's through sharing the faith that people will be awakened to faith. But don't mistake your role for God's role. It's not your job, our job, to confirm who's the elect. It's ultimately God. So let God be God, and let us be faithful to God by sharing the faith and letting God confirm their faith. Well, thank you for your questions. Again, I, I, I didn't, I'm sorry we didn't have enough time to address more of those questions. If you can go on your phone, highlight that question, and open up your Gmail or your ProtonMail account, if that's what you're into, and uh, paste that into your email and send it to kingsley at gracetoronto.ca, I would be delighted to respond to you privately. Please rise for the song of reflection.